we're not experts. I'm not an expert in anyone else's life. I know some things about psychology, but we're all in it together. And we're all trying to survive and work towards thriving and flourishing and be in the green zone of the mental health continuum and doing it together is so important. So I think of accompaniment as like, nobody's the expert. We're all alongside one another, learning as we're moving on together. Welcome to More Than Small Talk. We're Susie Eller, Jennifer Watson, and Holly Gerth, writers and real life friends. We're inviting you to go deeper, become freer, and feel more connected. So imagine you have a cup of coffee, a mug of tea, or a green smoothie in your hand, and we're all hanging out in your favorite place together. Hey, More Than Small Talk friends, we are back with you this week, and we have a special guest, Dr. Karen Dahl. Jennifer, can you tell us about our guest today? Yes, Dr. Karen Dole is a consultant psychologist with over 25 years experience. She is committed to helping people learn and gain insight and maximize potential. She's the author of Psychological Fitness, How Performers Achieve with Ease. Okay, so I am totally fascinated by your book and by what you do. So I think my first question is, what is psychological fitness? Let's just start there. Okay, great. Yes. So my book is called Building Psychological Fitness. And I I ended up leaning into that title just to make the information as accessible as possible and appealing as possible um, for people to get health and understanding that there are practices and interventions that they can engage in to enhance their mental health. So I use the term really to encompass all of mental, emotional, cognitive well-being and ability to cope effectively, function effectively, and reduce unnecessary distress in our lives. Oh, yeah. That sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> all, of, all, yeah, all of that, all please. Of <laughs> so your book has a lot of research in it. And so can you share with us some of the trends you're seeing in mental health and what you learned as you were researching the book? Absolutely. So my, my area of emphasis is psychology in the workplace. So I have been an acting psychologist working with professionals for years. I just haven't been able to call it exactly that until the last three years. So really, my whole career has been um, understanding people, coaching people. My degree is in clinical psychology, but I really operate in the space of coaching. And so the research that I do in the realm of human well-being and and thriving and flourishing really has been like my whole life because it's just a personal interest of mine. So, I mean, the research, I think we all know, especially in the last few years, and I would say this probably started even before the pandemic, but people are struggling. Yeah. Um, are, you know, increased rates of anxiety and depression and addiction and domestic violence mm-hmm. and suicide and their and loneliness. And we're learning now the impact, the ill effects of loneliness and social, social isolation and the effects that it's having on our physical and mental well-being. So that's the, the dark side of what we're finding in the research. Mm-hmm. Yet there also is hope and there's also a lot of research that's looking at all the different interventions and levers that we can pull 
to enhance our well-being and especially to be able to do it in synchrony with each other. So that's one of like my passion areas is this idea of accompaniment, which really is, you know, one of the things that you're doing in hosting a podcast like this is that understanding that, you know, we're not experts. I'm not an expert in anyone else's life. I know some things about psychology, but we're all in it together and we're all trying to survive and work towards thriving and flourishing and be in the green zone of the mental health continuum and doing it together is so important. So I think of accompaniment as like, nobody's the expert. We're all alongside one another learning as we're moving on together. Yeah. Yeah. I think one stat I read in your book, you said 90 plus percent of people know someone who's struggling with mental health now. And so, yeah, I think that's something important to know Mm -hmm. that this isn't a other people deal with this thing. This is a, every one of us needs to be equipped to help ourselves, but also to help each other. Uh, yes. And you know, it's interesting. I used to ask people at conferences like, okay, everyone raise your hand if you know somebody who's had a mental health challenge. So I would say I'd get like 30% of people who would raise their hand. Now, I mean, there's a little more awareness now. So 100% of us should be raising our hands right. because- we all have mental health challenges. More psychoeducation is helping us differentiate between the difference of what's mental illness, what's mental fitness, but we all have mental health. We all have struggles. We all have days where we feel sad or anxious or or depressed or lonely or fill in the blank. Yeah. You know, you talked about us doing this together. And so how important is support and why might we not reach out for support? Um, it's a really good question. Uh, why people wouldn't reach out? I think it's a number of things. They don't know how. They don't yeah. know where to go. And we're working on that. Um, and there's also still some shame and stigma. Uh, and the the effects of social media, social media can be constructive and generative and used for the good. Yet it also can be really damaging and especially for young people. Yeah. So there is just this pervasive sentiment of everyone else looks like they're doing so great. And then we compare like our insides to other people's outsides and highlight reels. And some of that is just human, human nature, human inclination, yet it's very deceiving. Um, And then I think that keeps people quiet. And in the workplace, for example, um, there's a lot of, there's still stigma and people having a fear of retaliation or a fear of, oh, if I tell my manager I'm struggling, I don't want that to impact my promotion or my performance review. I don't want them to think I can't handle it. So I think it's still, there's a lot of fear. Yeah. You know, Dr. Dahl, in my, in my church, we, um, and my husband is a licensed therapist. There is a very large, it's called the Joshua Center, but it's a very large counseling center. And what I love most about this is that faith, and counseling, the tools and faith um, from the the front of the church is presented as this is strong, this is healthy, this is this is what we need to do. And so, how did how might faith integrate into our well being? I, I love that question, and and it's been top of mind for me. I mean, there's there's a whole section in my book dedicated to 
spirituality and mental health. And then mm-hmm. there, there's a lot of research around the health promoting effects of religion mm-hmm. and mental health, which goes beyond just our internal faith. It makes my heart sing that your church has an area like that mm-hmm. and we can appeal to people's promotion of health. So mm-hmm. it's not come here to fix yourself. It don't cut. It's not come here to, you know, fix because you're flawed or you're broken, mm-hmm. but we can come together and ease suffering and then promote lean on our faiths to amplify and accelerate mental health. So there's, there's just a lot in the research around the correlation of people involved in a faith community and the promotion of mental health. Yeah. So I've recently gotten more involved. I've, I just uh, joined a nonprofit, which is integrating faith-based interventions into the therapeutic process. And what they're trying to do is, is train more clinicians to, to understand how to really weave that into the fabric of the therapeutic process. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know there are programs out there. I just see so much more opportunity for those two areas to intersect and really accelerate people's development. Yeah. Um, With Christianity, a lot of times we associate, well, we've had it spoken over us. If you are struggling with mental illness or depression that you don't have faith, could you just speak into that for someone who might be really struggling with shame and really fighting that, wondering if they're missing out or there's something that they're doing wrong? Mm, That is a that is a question of such depth. You know, I I don't want to speak as a spiritual advisor, but I would say most of the Christian faiths and traditions, what we believe is that we are whole Mm -hmm. and accepted by Christ as a whole and blessed being. Yes. Yeah. And the coming of Jesus saved us. Yeah. And how does that feed into the realm of psychology? I mean, oh my gosh, if we could tap into that to help people get to a place of self-acceptance and release some of the judgment. Because mm-hmm. a, a lot of people that I work with are high-achieving individuals. They, ha- they put a lot of pressure on themselves. They have a lot of the inner critic voice, um, which can be very shaming. Mm-hmm. And even in the subtle ways that we talk to ourselves and the, the subtle ways that our internal voices, oh, I should do this. I should go to church. I should reach out to this person. I should do that. The, it's a cognitive distortion, the shoulds are, meaning it's, you know, our our thinking is being filtered by a, an unpleasant emotion because shoulds are heavy. Mm-hmm. Guilt is heavy. Mm-hmm. So if we could release, give people permission to release some of that, oh, I think that'd be so powerful. Me too. Yeah. So what are some strategies that you found help with that? We've talked a lot about the inner critic on our podcast in particular, So what are some strategies that help with that inner critic or the pressure that we tend to put on ourselves? One strategy that I really love, especially for women, um, I find that women are particularly guilt ridden. I know guys experience it too, but I'm not sure I've ever met a woman who doesn't have some sort of a challenge with it. And I, I think that we are others centered. We're conditioned to be others centered and that can be fantastic until we're overcompromising ourselves. Um, So one question to ask ourselves when we're engaging in really self-critical talk is to just create a little space, hit pause, 
get a little bit of what we would call healthy detachment. So I'm going to just remove myself just a little bit from the thought and the feeling and say, okay, what would I tell a friend right now? Mm, that's because good. most of us do not, or I'll speak for myself. I do not talk to my friends. Like I talk to myself. Because if I did that, I would certainly have no friends. (laughs) (laughs) Very true. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And we all do it. It's just a matter of remembering. The inner critic, you know, fear is there to serve a purpose and keep us safe. And it's functional until it's not. Yeah. And so I don't know if you've ever heard the acronym uh, for fear, false evidence appearing real. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So just remembering the practice of, you know, when we have a triggered thought, or an internal critic thought that's not helpful or generative, climbing down the ladder of assumptions yeah. and doing some reframing and putting the thought on trial and saying, okay, what do I know to be true right now? That's really powerful. Is this true or is this just a story I'm telling myself? Yeah, it's good. So good. You know, when I look at this book, we're three high achievers. <laughs> we we just are. And and I have to I have to be aware that I'm wired that way. I always say that I am a a Mary with a Martha heart <laughs> because, you know, I can sit at Jesus' feet. I can I can take time, but honestly, my brain never stops. I am always dreaming. There's always something I want to be doing. And so I have to look at my own life sometimes and say, Suze. Is this balanced? Is this healthy? So how would your book, and I know it will, how will your book help someone like me? And Mm -hmm. just tell me the benefits from taking your expertise in these 400 pages and putting them into my life. Well, okay. One of the things, so we talked about, you know, what would we tell a friend or some cognitive reframing interventions? Those are what we would call top-down practices. Mm -hmm. We can also do, because sometimes that's helpful, and then sometimes more thinking about our thinking is actually not helpful, especially if we start ruminating at a certain point. It's like, I'm, this isn't, this isn't helping me. I'm feeling even more stuck. Um, And then there are what we call bottom-up practices. And that would be really, if we think of like mind-body-spirit connection, it's calming the nervous system from your body up so that your Mm -hmm. mind can settle a little bit. So the cultivating calm practices can help with that. And that is could be as simple as the four, seven, eight breathing exercise. You breathe in for four, hold for seven, breathe out for eight. Small bits of meditation can provide a really strong muscle to recenter and meditation, mindfulness, and prayer. And the practice of prayer can also um, help get us back to center. But really it is, I think, about remembering to slow down and be calm and be still Mm -hmm. and try to get a reprieve from the, the hustle. Yeah. 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 It's good. And you talk about burnout. So what are the components of burnout and what helps if we have found ourselves in a place where like, Oh, I'm feeling it. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, burnout, and it's a term that's used a lot. um, And I I think a lot of people in the last few years have been, it has resonated because, uh, you know, during COVID, we didn't have as many outlets. So there, there was a a strong drift with people kind of over leaning into, into work or not getting enough breaks. So, I mean, the components of burnout are just one is just a sense of total exhaustion. Mm -hmm. 
One is a sense of inefficacy. So that would be feeling less effective. And then another one would be a sense of skepticism or an attitude difference in how we approach our work. So how do we differentiate between stress, chronic stress, and burnout? Um, it's, it's not precise, but I would say one thing for people to watch out for if they're getting into that burnout phase is just looking for differences in your relationship with work. So a common um, attitude change can be somebody who's traditionally been really engaged in their work and passionate about their work, and now they're kind of coming from a place of, what's the point? Why mm -hmm. should I even care? or like a little bit of hopelessness or, or helplessness. So when you notice that difference, to me, that's that's one sign or signal um, to lean into watching out for burnout. And people in serving professions uh, are at risk. And frankly, high performers in any profession, high achieving, high performing people are at risk for burnout because they're passionate about what they do. They're good mm -hmm. at what they do. They care so much. And it is, I think, so important for us to just remember we have human limitation. Yeah. We have to reset and recharge. And I'm somebody that likes to go in fourth and fifth gear. That's my default. And mm -hmm. I have to be aware of it to remember to stay ahead of it. Because if I don't, I will hit burnout. Mm -hmm. And so finding levers to to move that pace so that I'm remembering to get back into second and third gear before I'm utterly depleted. Mm -hmm. That's good. So what's a practice that helps get us back out of burnout that maybe our listeners could even try today? <laughs> you know, it burnout is a continuum. And, and honestly, I would say people that are, are truly, truly struggling with burnout need an extended break from work. Mm -hmm. Like really a weekend off is not going to undo burnout. So ideally what we want to do is help people prevent it mm -hmm. and, and get them when they're on the cusp of burning out. Um, and I think that is just a matter of being really intentional about and smart about our leisure time and making sure that that rest, recovery, engagement with people, building connections and downtime is there. Yeah. Are we listening? So, <laughs> yeah, all of us need that. Yes. Are, are we listening, ladies? <laughs> mm -hmm. one, one, one thing I also want to want to <clears throat> mention just you know, burnout it really often occurs in dysfunctional work settings. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily just, you know, the working of long hours. It's often when something in the work environment is things in the work environment are, are misaligned. So you don't align yeah. well with your boss when people feel there's inequity, when there's a demand capacity problem. Yes. So the demand is larger than the capacity. That's probably the number one thing. So all of those components are really what foster <laughs> burnout developing. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things I always say in my presentations is like, it's, I, I love yoga and the practices that I suggest in my book. Those are all great and yet sometimes not sufficient. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I love, like we have such a sweet working relationship. And so I think what we have all admitted is that our instinct personally is to just keep going. Mm -hmm. 
you know, because we have, in addition to this, we're writing books, we're speaking, we're traveling. And so for my myself personally, and I don't know about you guys, you can share, um, I have to be self-aware and that has to be really intentional for me. Um, I love what you were talking about, like before, the cusp of burnout, you know, like cause Susie's saying being very intentional. But what can we do to catch ourselves on the cusp of burnout where we know we're like we're right there. We're close to the edge. So what do we do with that? Uh, you know what I think would be really impactful is if we all empowered each other. To set boundaries. To give ourselves and each other permission to say no mm-hmm. and prioritize. And decide what needs to wait. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, saying no is hard. I mean, it's hard to even say no to stuff when it's all stuff you're interested in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we don't want to disappoint people. That's probably mm-hmm. that's probably one of the number one things yeah. that keeps us overcommitted is we don't want to disappoint people. We don't want to let them down. Right. Yeah. So taking inventory, take inventory of our commitments. That's awesome. Well, I love your book and I loved the heart behind it, Dr. Dahl. So how can people find out more about where to find the book, where to find you? I know that you offer coaching. Uh, Share just a little bit about that. Yes, thank you. So um, my website is drkarendahl.com. I'm on LinkedIn and you can find my book at Amazon or really anywhere, Barnes and Noble, anywhere books are sold. And that's appreciate it. Reach out anytime. I'm super passionate about mental health awareness and especially moving the needle on mental health awareness at work. And so I love any conversation like this that can help move the needle because I always think even if there's one person who hears a discussion like this and says, oh, okay, I'm so glad I'm not the only one. Mm. And that's a great way to end it right there. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you for being with us today. And that's it for today's episode. Thanks for going deeper, becoming freer, and connecting with us. More Than Small Talk is a part of the KLRC Podcast Network and is produced by Kara Culver. Show notes and resources are available on the More Than Small Talk page on klrc.com. You can also join us in our Facebook group. Subscribe to More Than Small Talk on your favorite app so you won't ever miss an episode.